It's the Growing for Market podcast. Is crossing a natural relative of tomato that normally that lives in the jungles of Peru that normally would not have crossed to our commercial variety, which we the commercial tomatoes that we've developed over the centuries, you could ask the question, is that risky and is that genetic modification? And by some biological measures, it is because you're bringing in another genome. And essentially then what you want to do is you want to continue to cross it to the domestic variety for long enough so that you can get rid of all the other garbage that you don't want. You're really trying to get disease resistance and just by through sort of continual crossing, crossing, crossing to domestic and not back, and then following disease resistance, you're trying to get that thing in there alone. Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about all things market farming related. I'm Andrew Mefford, one of your hosts and editor of Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the magazine for veg and flower farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. In a few minutes, we'll have shop talk with Neversink Farm, talking about farm tools with Connor Crickmore. We'll be chatting about new tools, old tools, how they can benefit your farm, and tips to use them successfully. Neversink Farm makes this podcast happen with their generous support so it can come to you for free. And we think there's no better collaborator for a podcast by farmers for farmers than Neversink Farm, where the tools are designed by farmers. So check them out at NeversinkTools.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Andrew Mefford. I'm the editor of Growing for Market magazine, and I'm here today with Fred Hempel, whom I've known since 2009. Actually, I'm remembering because that was my first year working at Johnny's Selected Seeds as a trial technician. And so one of the crops that I had was tomatoes. And so it was my job to look at all the new tomatoes that had been bred and decide if there was anything better that was new than what we had in the catalog at the time. And so one of the interesting things about taking over that job is that the previous year's technician had left and had left notes on a 200 and some variety field tomato trial. So one of my first jobs there at Johnny's was to read over his notes and see if there was anything from the previous year that would have been worthwhile putting in in the following year's trial. And so I started looking over the the previous technician's notes on the previous year's trial. And honestly, a lot of stuff did not stand out. I think one thing that people who have not done uh, variety trialing don't know is that a lot of the tomato varieties are really not that great. A lot of the tomatoes out there are bred either more for shipping or for looks than they really are for flavor. And so there were a lot of really mediocre tomatoes in that trial that did not stand out. But one of the varieties that did was this tomato called Malia Rosa, which Fred bred. So since it stood out in that trial, I wanted to make sure and, and look at it again. And so called Fred up and I said, hey, what's up with this tomato? And I think like any good breeder, Fred said, hang on, I got something better. So the tomato that was better is one that a lot of growers may know is now called Blush. So that following year, we trialed Blush and liked it, that a lot. And Malia Rosa is still around, but I seem to remember one of the things about Malia Rosa is it had kind of a short, more determinate kind of plant type. And that one of the things that you liked better about Blush was that it was more of a vining, indeterminate type, the kind of indeterminate tall vining plant that that a lot of growers want to grow. So we've you know corresponded ever since. In fact, that led to me taking a number of trips out to California where Fred is and visiting his nursery to look over the things that he was developing. So that was a fun thing for me because I, I think, Fred, you were probably my favorite person to go visit when I worked at Johnny's just because uh, if I can say so, I think we're both big tomato nerds. And so that was a really exciting thing for me to be able to go just look at this really interesting nursery that was also, I should say, very flavorful focused. As I mentioned, a lot of the submissions that we got from the big breeding companies just really didn't taste that good. The tomatoes might have looked great, but you know, a lot of them really just weren't that great to eat. And so it was really fun for me to go visit somebody who was breeding things that tasted good. So with that introduction, Fred, would you tell us a little bit about where you are and tell us a little bit about your farm? 
I'm in Northern California, and I'm a little bit east of San Jose, over the hills, so a little bit warmer. And I would say our farm is, uh, in terms of climate, it's wine country. So it's similar. If people know Napa, that's we're kind of the East Bay Napa. Actually, the wineries in this area are older than the Napa wineries. And, you know, it's a great place to grow tomatoes and peppers, just not as blazingly hot as the Central Valley, so less sun scald, but and, and a little bit cooler at night, so the tomatoes ripen a little bit slower, but certainly plenty warm in the daytime. So I think it's a great place to be when you really want to, you know, try to maximize flavors. And I operate a farm that used to have another name that was very... It was in Italian and it was hard to say and difficult to spell and no one knew what it meant. And so it was a, basically a horrible name to have chosen. But now the, the farm is called Green Bee Farm and it's named after my daughter and I rebranded and we named it after really one of our most unique tomatoes called Green Bee, which we've developed in the last few years and is actually sold in the Johnny's catalog. So we, we're out here and right now the... The business used to used to be more oriented towards farming, and one of the things I did with my breeding is I tried to spend a lot of time help having chefs helping me evaluate about what was what were the good traits or what were they using things for. You know, sometimes if I thought think something was great, one of the things was color. When I first started breeding, color I really didn't care about color as much as maybe I should have, because in some cases, well, when you start working with other people, you realize many people have, will only grow certain color tomatoes and other colors are just the most inviting to people like yellow marbled tomatoes, like hillbilly with the yellow flesh, with the interior pink marbling. Those are, that's like, if you can make better tomatoes with that look, it can be a gold mine. But then also just red and pink are so important for anyone trying to make money, which we've been trying to do because many people won't eat anything other than red or pink. So you really need to pay attention to that. But our farm has gotten smaller because we were getting feedback like that from chefs. But then now we've really tried to take the next step towards making the seed company more, more valuable and also getting our stuff out there, getting it promoted better, getting it grown more widely. And we've got things that are really available for larger growers now and, and also growers who, medium-sized growers, small growers too, but people who, who want to have the best of all worlds and they want to have the flavor, but they want to have it, they don't want to have their, lose half their crop. If, if their farmer's market's rained out, they don't want to have to throw away half their tomatoes because they only last a day or two. So we've got some of those tomatoes now. And um, so now, my, now I actually have a job. I formed a company with some old friends of mine, one who's a fantastic grower in Mexico, others who I've worked with in academia and business in the past. Artisan Seeds really now has the backing that I wanted to have years and years ago, but was just never able to, you know, never able to, to find a way to get it. So now the farm exists as a four acre showcase for artisan seeds. It really, anything we sell is kind of gravy and we still work with chefs. So we're, we're still a functioning farm, but the priorities have completely shifted towards developing new varieties and that's we don't get up and worry day to day whether we should well I don't worry day to day whether I should work on my plan for breeding in Mexico next month or whether I should try to sell 15 boxes of spigarello in the field I don't worry about that the, the answer is simple I work on my breeding my breeding tasks and then the other stuff and more and more I also pay other you know people working for me to do the stuff that I used to do which is good because I'm yeah, well, th that's good because I know I think one of the things that really set your breeding apart was that you were selling, I know, to restaurants and I think maybe some of the terminal markets in your area and stuff like that, or that might be the wrong term for them, but uh, wholesale markets. I remember sometimes when I came out to visit you and you, I think you took me down to one of the San Francisco markets where you were dropping off produce and stuff like that. So I thought that was probably a real positive for your breeding in that you were able to 
put some of your varieties in front of chefs or wholesalers or whomever before maybe the variety was completely finished. And you correct me if I'm wrong about that, but it was probably, yeah, that was part of your development process, right? Yeah, it was part of my development and um, also part of my learning about what I'd done at the end to figure out which things really were more valuable. A lot of times the way I'd prioritize things in the field for chefs was not right. And they wanted something that I really didn't realize they would want. So a few years ago, I was selling to a Michelin star restaurant that happened to be located in a resort. So in addition to the fancy Michelin star meals that we might think of, they also had to serve burgers at lunch, but the burgers had to be great. And so I had a breeding line that I was working with and I happened to, I don't know if I specifically took it over for that reason, or they wanted beef steaks or what was going on, but I would say it was about 75 to 80% heirloom flavor, but it was slabby like an heirloom. It had interior, it was smooth, velvety flesh, not, and some heirlooms, the ones that I like the best, the beef steaks, they don't have a huge amount of seeds. They really have a lot of flesh without core. And so this tomato had all of those things, but it was also firm, had good shelf life. And when you cut a slab to put on a burger or a sandwich, it wouldn't disintegrate in 15, 20 minutes. So in other words, when you look at what's out there right now in terms of what we can get with regards to tomatoes, and you think about specifically what someone making really nice sandwiches can get, they're often still limited to what we would think of as sort of not the best tasting commercial varieties, but what the really high-end sandwich shops need is they need to put something on a sandwich and have it. It's not how good does it taste in five minutes. It's also if they're selling and they're selling a lot of to-go or people are wrapping stuff up and taking it home, they can't have that thing that tomato falling apart. And so high-end sandwich shops, that's one area in which they just have not been able to differentiate themselves against their competitors. And that's the area of tomatoes. I, you know, you don't think of a high-end sandwich shop saying, usually it's the it's the particular type of protein that's on there or the, or the relish or the mustard, or, or there's something that distinguishes a place for you. And, and I, I can't think of a time when I've gone and said, oh, well, that was a great tomato at that place. And so, and it, it's largely an issue of the shelf life and also the firmness and, you know, ability to kind of hold together that that hasn't, there just aren't that many tomatoes that combine commercial beefsteak characteristics with, you know, that we need for storage and with the flavors that we associate with those heirlooms like Cherokee purple that just have a velvety interior, the the softness, that's the thing. This tomato that I brought, even though it was only 70, 85% flavor, it, it had all these other characteristics that people like about heirlooms. And so they started putting on their burgers. And then the other thing that they realized is that it, the thing lasted two weeks at room temperature on a rack in the kitchen. And so, you know, that's the other, pro, that's, it, what, that's a challenge if you're in a low margin business like food industry is that it's a real pain to try to figure out how many tomatoes you're going to buy this week. And so for me, you know, as a farmer, it's a pain because people are always running out and want you to come over and do another delivery or whatever. And, but from their standpoint, their managing inventory is, you know, it's a lot of their time. It's a lot of work and this tomato offered them the ability just to buy a few boxes and not worry about whether or not they were going to have to buy very many next week or not, because those boxes were going to really spill over into the next delivery time easily. And so that was one situation where I just didn't view that tomato as having such high value. In other words, I'm so flavor focused that I thought, well, this thing has all these other things, but it just doesn't have the flavor yet. But then I realized that even if I did something that was 80% of what people associate with that real top shelf heirloom flavor, that was going to be good enough for a lot of people because of all the other things that were combined that normally just weren't you know, available. And so that was a case where that particular breeding line be- all of a sudden became very, very important to me in my work for breeding beefsteaks 
that were, you know, as much flavor as possible, but could had a greater utility. So that was a case where I learned a lot when I wasn't really expecting to. And now let's talk farm tools with Connor of NeverSync Farm, our collaborator on this podcast. Hey, Connor. I know we have talked about using windstrip trays and talked about using paper pot transplanter trays. How do you decide which trays to use? And are there any other uh, nursery trays that, that you use on your farm? It's interesting because trays are kind of aligned with the history of our farm. You can kind of see the progression of our farm from the trays we used. Because we started out with, with just uh, soil blocking. We did soil blocking for three years. First year we did nothing but. I don't know if you've ever done it, but it is incredibly time consuming. While it does create a good start with less transplant shock, it does consume a lot of soil. They're very hard to manage because they dry out very quickly because so many sides are exposed and very hard to make because you have to make a correct mix and then you're making all of your stuff at once. And, you know, we were doing it into wooden trays, but they just started to rot. So we ended up using plastic trays, I think, which most people do. So it's not like we were cutting down on plastic or anything. We were still using plastic trays for it. Then we just said, let's just start seeing how trays work. And we tried 1020 trays, which I, I call them 1020s, but those are just the regular vacuum forms. You know, they're thinner, they break. They're, you know, some people call them single-use trays, but you can get a couple of years out of them. Maybe, you know, then you start kind of using two at once, three at once, right? And you start using yeah. more and more of them at once. But they just, they just start getting less and less air to the seedling and you get a lot more disease. And that's what we would get. You know, we're next to a river, we're in a valley and we always have trouble with uh, keeping things dry. So that was causing us a lot of problems and they would end up breaking and you can't carry, you know, you couldn't carry them, you know, it's so floppy. So you'd have to carry one at a time. And, you know, we want to carry a whole bunch and not have to walk back and forth. So we started looking at them and we've done... Prop tech trays, we've done those long, thin injection molds. I forget the name of them. I, I don't really see them around much. They don't seem to be very popular. It's sort of an odd size. They're very they're thin and long, but they're very much like prop tech. They have the same sort of shape, kind of very hard to get the, the seedling out of. And that was the problem we found. We couldn't get the, the seedlings out of it, although they're kind of indestructible trays, those things. They're really indestructible. Their geometry is, you know, will stand up forever. But today we use wind strips, paper pot trays, microgreen trays, and we use uh, our indestructible trays for shoots. And we were using 1020s for those for a long time because we didn't find anything else. But the reason I use wind strip trays is because some great farmers who we were admiring were using them. And we got in on, I don't know if you recall back in the day, but you would get them if they fell off a truck. If the company that were, that had designed them, Windigan, that's why they're called uh, Windstrips, would only uh, supply them to their uh, customers. They had million-dollar greenhouse nurseries they were building for customers. and They would uh, sell them the nursery trays as part of that package. And that, that's why they work so well, because a windstrip tray does what a soil block does, but without all the mess, without all the hassle, right. you carry them around, and they're indestructible. So... You know, when they stopped producing them, you know, I talked to them and got it transferred so that I could make them for farmers and make them for myself. I did not have a 50 tray until I started manufacturing because, you know, I had the 72. I got in on that. I got in the 128, but I never got in on a 50. Didn't exist. Very hard to find. So, you know, I actually use them not because I manufacture them. I manufacture them because, I, you know, I use them and I love them. And I wanted to make sure they were available to anybody who wanted to use them. And I'm happy with those. So that's the combination I use is windstrip trays. And then I use paper pot trays for paper potting. And I also use paper pot trays for microgreens and then indestructibles for shoots. Well, that's cool. I was excited to hear the story about the windstrips because we have some windstrip trays that are well, we got them almost 20 years ago, so they've got to be at least that old from a research farm that I used to work on, and they're still going strong. So I think that was from before you were doing the manufacturing, but I always wondered how you got into them. So now I know. And now back to the show. Yeah, well, that's. I think that's really cool how you have it sort of shortens the feedback loop. 
And even when you have a goal, one of my goals with breeding has always been to combine the high flavor with these traits. But then when you're in the middle of it, you kind of lose track. And does that variety have a name? Is it released or is this? It's a breeding line, but it was important for the development of, so breeding lines become split off into other breeding lines and so on and so forth. That breeding line was very, the genetics of that line is throughout the new varieties that we have. And there are two really that I would say are sort of ones people should try right now. The first one is called Benevento. And if you go to my Instagram, the Artisan Seeds Instagram, in the past year, the Instagram might as well have been called Benevento as opposed to Artisan Seeds because that's really been a breakthrough variety for us. And it's one that we are really excited about and trying to popularize. And it's an interior, it's very pink. The exterior is red with yellow stripes. And so as a breeder, what I know now is that for there are many people who, you know, they just only want to eat pink or red tomatoes. And so they'll eat this, but they want to be excited. And so the yellow stripes on the surface, you know, it's still a red tomato. It's still, it, it can check both boxes. It can be kind of exciting and heirloomy and at the same time in terms of look. And at the same time, it's just, uh, it's right in the, what people expect to have with their, you know, and, and won't go outside of for, for a large number. Um, so Benevento is one. It's also in another variety called Amalfi Orange, and it's an orange beefsteak. So both of these are moderately large beefsteaks, pretty well shaped, pretty good disease resistance. But one of the things I'm realizing is that I'm breeding for California and Mexico, and that's, and you know, and you got to focus. And so Right now, my whole discussion with people wanting to try the varieties, whether it be a seed company or a grower, is, hey, you know, we try to incorporate genetics appropriate for other places. And a lot of times we're pulling in things that do well in other places. But ultimately, our selections are here. So the the people who should be most paying attention to what I'm doing are California growers and also people growing in Mexico because we do a selection every summer here. And then our lines go down to Mexico and are selected there. So we've done no lab work on it at all. But we know we have extremely good population of breeding lines with regards to tomato yellow leaf curl. Because there are years in Mexico where if we don't have tomato yellow leaf curl virus resistance, the plants just get stunted and and ruined. And so... You know, we've got, you know, we've got certain things that are really important where we grow in these plants. And then they, they at times will do pretty well other places or they might do well under cover somewhere else. So we're really working to have more and more California growers growing these beefsteaks. Undercover, they do really well in our field, just out open field in our climate. Yeah. So you mentioned your Instagram. Is it at Artisan Seeds? Yeah, at Artisan period seeds. All right, folks, check it out. There's a lot of good stuff over there. Okay. One of the things I noticed trialing your varieties in Maine is that they did pretty well here too. And I I always wondered if that was that you were, you know, you're not in the hottest part of California. And also people grow so many tomatoes in greenhouses now too. I think they did well in, in greenhouses also. And so don't necessarily, I don't want people to count themselves out. For your varieties if just because they're not in, in california and mexico and i get what you're saying about having to choose but they, they seem pretty adaptable to me early on the artisan cherry tomatoes that you're talking about that are still in the johnny's catalog a lot of the early breeding was sort of in the fog belt on the coast here so it wasn't the optimal place for flavor that i'm talking about where my farm is it was berkeley and hayward and windy foggy sites you know a lot of the early breeding work and collection of genetic material was done in community garden spaces, things like that. So yeah, so there's a reason that they're not completely terrible. And, they, and, and some of them seem to do okay. You know, there's a handful of things that people around the South say, oh, these work really great here. And there's some others that just really, I would not recommend in the Northeast or the South, but there are a couple that I get continually get feedback on how they're well above average in terms of vigor, productivity, and ability to resist disease. 
there's a lot of breeders talking about the need for more determinant or semi-determinant varieties, things that when you sprawl them on the ground, they do well. Uh, you know, some of the most leggy or, or indeterminate varieties, you can sprawl them, but they're, they're so, you know, it's so difficult to get through the mess of the field to pick them. And so you want something that's at least fairly compact if you're going to sprawl it. And Molly Rosa, you know, works well for that. So, and even if you lose, you know, and when you, when you start making those calculations as a grower, especially when you're small in some cases, even if you lose half your crop, then the amount of money you save by not staking things up may make it worthwhile for you to just, you may, you may not do any worse with a sprawling variety given how expensive farming is and how expensive trellising is. Yes. And uh, actually, you you bringing up the expense associated with all this stuff makes me want to make a point and that um, I feel like there are not that many people doing what you're doing independently, right? But I think most of the breeders who are cranking out a lot of varieties on a regular basis work for a bigger company. So I think that's one thing that sets you apart in that you have your own company, but I know over the years you've used your farm there in Sonol. I know for a while you, you were having winter nursery at Berkeley, if I'm not wrong about that. And then you had the farm in, down in Mexico. And I think there are a lot of people who have either, you know, found an interesting sport or mutant in their field and bred one or two varieties or something. But to really develop a lot of good varieties like you've done takes a lot of a lot of time, money, and, and resources. It, tell me if I got this wrong, but I think you kind of used your farm as a source of income to bankroll the breeding work in in the way that a bigger company would just say, okay, we've got money coming from seed sales. So here, here breeder, you know, that pays the breeder, pays the people to do the work on it, it, potentially extensive field field or greenhouse trials in potentially in a few different locations. You know, that's that's one of the ways that big, multinational seed companies accelerate the development process that I think I think aren't familiar with breeding don't know is the the nursery in Mexico is a winter essentially a winter nursery so has Mexico taken the place that Berkeley used to be for you and actually if you could just explain a little bit for people who don't understand that cycle how having three different nurseries accelerates the, the time frame for you well part of what you need to do with breeding is you need to be able to consistently, and reproducibly make genetic crosses. And so being in a greenhouse nearby in the Bay Area that had temperature and day extending light in the winter and, and, and increased temperature, those are really necessary for, for making crosses that are consistent. Even though our field in the summer seems to be a pretty decent climate most of the time, a lot of days it's just too hot for the pollen or the nights, it's just a little too cold for enough pollen shed. And one of the things that we have figured out, and one of the reasons why I use less greenhouse space these days, is that the sort of moderate temperatures in midwinter down in Mexico where we are, are that you pull the flowers open and it's like cotton candy. There's just pollen falling out all over and it's visual. It, you can see it without really trying with your naked eye. It's just, so I think it's a combination of the warm days, usually gets 70 to 80 in the greenhouses, but rarely over that. And then the relatively uh, warm nights where it doesn't really go down lower than the mid sixties very often. And so those, for whatever reason, that just seems to be pollen production. The pollen production just seems to happen very easily. And so when you're trying to go to flowers and get pollen out to take them somewhere else and put them on another flower to make a genetic cross, it's actually the relatively low-tech greenhouses of Mexico that we're working in where the conditions are best for doing a lot of the crossing. So we don't even try to cross anywhere else anymore. Um, typically, if we have greenhouse space in the Bay Area these days, it's just a to grow something out that's really important that we need to push ahead as fast as possible that didn't fit into one of the other seasons or fields. But as far as the crossing goes, we go down for a week and we just cross, cross, cross every day as much as we can. And we get so much more done 
there than we would, you know, anywhere else that we know about. The reality is that, well, the idea that you're going to finance it with your farm is just insane. It's and, and it's insane. And I have data to back it up, which is I was not able to do it without some very key people coming in and bailing me out at certain times because A, were nice people, but B, saw something going on with my breeding that they wanted to kind of participate in or that they were willing to, you know, one was a, a large wholesaler who saw the potential for, you know, him getting access to the stuff. And, you know, after years of owing him money, which I still do, he's starting to see some of the types of varieties that can really make a difference for him. And so really, it's one of these things where I would never set up a podcast or set up some workshop to tell people how to be independent breeders. Because when you look at what it costs and you look at what an individual who doesn't have family wealth has available, it's very, very difficult. You know, it was something where, you know, I kind of did it based on working way too many hours, risking my health. It's not a sustainable kind of life. But in the end, I ended up being fortunate that there were enough people along the way to kind of hang in there with me. The key thing that I did right is the insane thing, which is I tried to farm and breed at the same time. And in a sense, if you really want to move fast as a small breeder, I think there's incredible value to to looking at varieties over the course of a season. When you're forced to do that, you and when you're when you're a grower yourself, you really start to understand how to make nuanced selections because of things that are of value to you taking things to the market. And so I think there's a real advantage there. What I originally tried to do is as a beginning breeder with ideas, approach large growers that, you know, in theory could have given me a half an acre at my disposal to help develop varieties for them. But that didn't work because, you know, I didn't have anything. And of course, now I've, I've got growers who are friends and they want to be my friend and they want to trial with me and they want to work with me. And I've got and I can be selective and I can work with really good people that I enjoy working with. But it's because I got the goods. And back in the day, I didn't. And at that point, farmers are broke enough. They didn't have that extra. They're, they're staying at the edge of cutting edge varieties and stuff is just paying attention to the Johnny's catalog, what comes out there every year and what comes out in the other places. And you know, that's really what they have the finances to do. They just don't have the time and the energy to deal with someone with ideas. Would you tell us how you got interested in plant breeding and tell us, you went to, got a PhD in plant breeding, is that right? No, I have a PhD in plant biology. Okay. It may be a good thing that I didn't get a PhD in plant breeding because then I may have been convinced by my mentors and you know, just, I mean, I'm, that what I'm doing is crazy and I shouldn't do it, that really this is what you do as a breeder. These are your options as a career, you know, academia or you go to a company or whatever. But I think that the way I've done plant breeding probably benefits from the fact that I know all of the genetics and I have a, I have a feeling for plants that I think breeders do. Now, I was a plant biologist who Really, even though I was in a molecular biology department, I really cared about plants. I was the only graduate student of all the ones that I was going to school with who wanted to go to the greenhouse and take care of their own plants. Everybody else was trying to do the fastest molecular work they could and get greenhouse staff to do everything that they could uh, get the greenhouse staff to do. And if they never had to go see their plants ever, that would not have, until they extracted DNA, that would have been perfectly fine with them. But for myself, I'm really kind of a more a botanist at heart. And even though I was in this, this hardcore molecular biology genetics department and studying sort of the basics, I was, I was studying development, but I realized that, you know, the beauty of development occurs when you, it's all about the plants. So I was a little bit different kind of person than the average person going to getting a degree at the time that I got. And in the end, I ended up uh, working for 
a biotech company for a short period of time, but I was actually valued by that company as the person who could go to the field and with the collaborations that were going on with um, with actually a, a company, it was a tomato company, a breeding company that bred tomatoes. And I could actually make sense of things and talk to them and so on and so forth. And that's one, I mean, that sort of interaction also got me to thinking, well, there's this, you know, because at the time I was, uh, I grew a lot of heirlooms in my community garden space, sort of as a hobbyist. And at the time, then I, and then I was interacting with, with these, uh, you know, tomato breeders and seed companies that really, I just felt like they said that they wanted to do flavor, but then they, they, all the other things they were saying convinced me that they really weren't, that that really wasn't their top priority. It was like, you know, they, they wanted to do everything else. Yeah, more than well, flavor. they had to do everything else. And then if they could stick a little bit of flavor in, that would be great. And also I, I became more and more aware from the fact that I was exposed to one of the best companies, you know, making tomatoes for production. I was really exposed to the their complete line. And I realized that nothing that they had was that there was just this big gap between heirloom flavor and then all of the performance, the tomatoes with performance. There was this sort of middle ground where there weren't many things that were available. That's sort of where you got good flavor, but you also... You could store it for a few extra days or, and so, you know, I kind of decided that that might be a very exciting place to be. The other thing I was realizing is that a lot of the people who love heirlooms are in a way that they, they believe that all of the good things exist and it's the preservation of them that is laudable, but that everything new is not good. Hybrids are bad. And, and so all of the things that I wanted to do, like, the, like even just the, they weren't going to do it. You know, the, the idea that people who really love flavor were going to do this, it seemed like I'm not going to have a lot of competition from that side because so many people just don't believe that there's nothing new that comes about that's worth anything. And at the same time, you had, like you were talking about, you have people in industry who are constrained by the demands of large-scale agriculture. And most of the people working on tomatoes are probably working on processing tomatoes. It's fresh flavor is actually has very little to do with what they're trying to do, which is, you know, streamline the amount of pounds you can pull off an acre in the Central Valley of California, period. That's it. So it was just an area where, I felt like even if it wasn't a huge niche and I had no idea how big the niche was, I just didn't feel like there were many other people who were go in there for various reasons. Okay. And just there's so much confusion about the difference between genetic modification and traditional plant breeding and all that kind of stuff. I'm not sure if that a lot of people are familiar with molecular markers. Am I correct that that's basically... Just the, a molecular marker is a presence of a gene that confers a trait, like say blonde hair in people, it's a, can confirm that there's the presence of leaf mold resistance or something like that in a, and all, all your breeding is traditional breeding, no genetic modification or anything like that. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Because yeah. I just, it seems like anytime we get into technical breeding terms, you know, I think, you know, breeding is kind of, uh, they see the traits as they're expressed that people don't have a good understanding of, of breeding in the background. I just wanted to, to make that clear in, in case anybody was listening and thought that, you know, it, it's the molecular markers are just sort of like telling, knowing what genes do. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with gen- genetic modification. Right. It has nothing to do with genetic modification. It has to do being able to recognize the variability of what's there through seeing if a sequence of DNA is there or not. But it's a little trickier than that because a lot of these molecular markers come from natural relatives of tomato that have a certain level of toxicity associated with them. And you can ask the question, is crossing a natural relative of tomato that normally that lives in the jungles of Peru that normally would not have crossed to our commercial variety, which we, the commercial tomatoes that we've developed over the centuries, you could ask the question, is that risky and is that genetic modification? And by some biological measures, it is. 
because you're bringing in another genome. And essentially then what you want to do is you want to continue to cross it to the domestic variety for long enough so that you can get rid of all the other garbage that you don't want. You're really trying to get disease resistance and just by through sort of continual crossing, crossing, crossing to domestic and not back and then following disease resistance, you're trying to get that thing in there alone. Uh But that never happens. You never get clean sequence of a gene from a natural relative in alone. And now you have to ask the question, is that genetic modification? I think in terms of a biological measurement, that's just as profound, if not more profound and more risky than most of the genetic modification that's been proposed by sticking one sequence in in a lab. In other words, you're sticking a lot of sequences in there. You're following one, but you can't completely get rid of all the rest. And if the, if the variety is particularly, the argument against genetic engineering is also often that it's, there's unknown allergen situations that will come up and are risky for people. If you use a natural relative, there are unknown proteins and allergens that may show up in your tomatoes as well. The funny thing is that, you know, one of the main cases places that the heirloom people know about this type of, see, this is low tech crossing, which people would maybe view as safe, but this is where all those anthocyanin rich varieties come from. Natural relatives that normally would not cross with domesticated tomato and carry some amount of risk. So it's low tech, so no one regulates it. But in a way, it's kind of a, it's an interesting biological fact that these things, that, that low tech does not mean risk-free. And so, you know, these are things that are, th- these discussions of, you know, what's safe and what isn't are so much more nuanced than most people want to give them credit for. The risks involved, uh, now I don't, I don't want to, you know, get people thinking that I just think all well, genetic and engineering is great and no problem. You know, that g- genetic engineering doesn't occur in a vacuum either. It occurs for a specific economic and reason. And there are certainly issues around things like genetic engineering for Roundup or other issues associated with large agriculture and what the goals are. You can make strong arguments that there are risks and there are problems and there are things that you should be avoiding But the problem is that it's all been sort of just linked back to the technology, which really overlaps a lot in terms of the way it's actually done and whether new genes are getting in there with conventional technology that is basically accepted, namely those purple tomatoes. Yeah. Well, in, in addition to purple tomatoes, is this also relevant because I know a lot of disease resistances and things like that that aren't in, say, garden variety tomatoes may exist in the homeland of tomatoes, right? So in that case, we're talking Central and South America, right? And so let's say people want late blight resistance or some, you know, some disease resistance that's unusual in garden variety tomatoes. You know, I always picture uh, breeders like in pith helmets, uh, finding some weedy tomato relative down in Peru or Mexico or somewhere that has some unusual disease resistance that that most tomatoes don't have. And so am I correct? Your point is that, you know, they're taking some tomato relative that has some interesting disease resistance in crossing it. And so even if it's natural crossing, there's always genes in addition to say, you know, leaf mold resistance or whatever you want. You may get, you may cross your garden variety tomato to a a weedy tomato relative and get the leaf mold resistance, but other stuff may come along with those. So that's why, is that why it's important to, to our conversation? Because that's where we're getting new genes from is is from the wild and and you know it's essentially a, a genetic a genetic mine for breeders to go find the weedy relatives and get interesting things out of those populations. Yeah, it's the way that things have been done for a long time. And people, you don't have to go to you don't have to go to South America and find something. You just go to the collections at University of California Davis and order them online if you're a breeder and cross them. And many amateur breeders are able to you know get a hold of them as well. You know, I'm always surprised that the people who want to argue against such strong control over genetic engineering don't talk about how conventional breeding really works and how new traits are brought in 
And the fact that food and breeding at a certain level is risky. It is risky and food is risky to us. You know, a lot of people, I'm a person who has sort of a hypersensitive immune system. And I know that certain foods, I know that there are issues around allergies and immune response. And, you know, this is something that's serious. But the idea that if we do things in the old fashioned way, that it's not risky, it just doesn't, it doesn't make biological sense. Nuanced discussions of, you know, genetic engineering are few and far between because either it's going to save the world or it's going to destroy the world. And there's very few people in between who are saying, wait a minute, you know, let's just take this on a case by case basis. But in, in reality, there's also not that many people who really have the background necessarily to understand the nuances as well. That's not, you know, that's a part of the problem. Well, you know, that actually reminds me of something that I know you've been doing a lot of work on, and you can explain it a lot better than I can. I'd, I'd like to ask you about your use of, a, of of RIN in tomatoes. One of the things about this RIN is that it, it can help improve the shelf life of tomatoes. Shelf life is almost seen as anathema to flavor. And I feel like you have said we can have both. Can you tell a little, us a little bit about what what you've been doing with RIN and how that's come out in some of your varieties? RIN is a, a gene that was discovered, and I, th- I, don't, I can't remember where it was discovered, whether it was somebody at Cornell in the 60s or 50s, or, but then at, at Cornell, it was characterized, the, the genetic, in the 90s, where all the crazy genetics was going on when I was in grad school, RIN was characterized uh, as a gene that, it's one of these so-called transcription factors that sort of controls a lot of other genes that are involved with softening. And, you know, exactly what it does in the normal plant, and there, there are variants out there where, and these are naturally occurring variants, that just basically, they're kind of blocked in their softening. And when I first became aware of RIN, the way that it was described was that if you had one copy of RIN, you would slow down ripening. And if you had two, you would block it. So in other words, it was really necessary for ripening. But then if you basically sort of reduced your ability to make RIN in the plant, that you could slow things down. And so all of the, you know, what people were thinking about in terms of how are they going to use RIN was in terms of this, what's called the heterozygote. You make a hybrid, one parent has RIN, one doesn't, and it slows down ripening. And so my introduction to RIN came from my friend, Mark McCaslin, who I was working with, collaborating with kind of at the time. And he had pulled it out of a variety from Randy Gardner, who's an emeritus professor at North Carolina State University, who does has a lot of great varieties, some of which are in the Johnny's catalog. So it was one of the Randy Gardner varieties that Mark pulled Rin out of. We started crossing it to basically the artisan lines because this was the idea. It was going to be blocked if we were developing a line, but we I wanted to see in my field if I could develop the least worst tasting unripe tomato so that maybe we had a clue. See, that's the problem with using Rin is if you're trying to create flavorful tomatoes is if Rin's blocked and you're developing that breeding line, you shouldn't be able to evaluate flavor because it's blocked. And so Uh how do you know which of those breeding lines you're developing will contribute because once it's once it's combined with something else where flavor where ripening is kind of released albeit slowly the idea would be that there are flavor genes in there but you won't see them you can't evaluate them what we decided to do what i decided to do in my field is grow as many of these rin lines that we were creating and try to taste them at the time that they were you know at the time where they had the the smallest essence of ripeness or You know, even if they were green, maybe we could figure out which ones were better or worse than others. At least we could start taking some guesses. So the big surprise was that they really weren't blocked in ripening so much as they were blocked in softening. And so green bee is an example. Green bee, our green bee farm is named after our tomato green bee. Green bee is available in the Johnny's catalog. And green bee is a variety where it it has two of the best of these breeding lines that we came up with. And the thing about both of the breeding lines was that they develop sweet flavors. They develop sweet 
flavors in combination with a crispiness that you normally would not associate with a ripe tomato. And so we started realizing that the, the way that the scientific literature, the way that the science publication describes the block of the, the block, they describe it as a little more cut and dry than it really is. And because these tomatoes ripen, they get their sugars slowly and they have these flavors coming in slowly, but they're, you know, they can be very uh, strong, actually. That's green bee, if you let green bee hang on the vine, it will develop some really sweet flavors. Strange thing about that we've realized about green bee is that green bee is often a tomato for people who don't like tomatoes because the red color is still blocked. Lycopene, lycopene is sort of connected with and associated with certain tomatoey flavors. And so the fact that they just get a very hint of pink at some times and that they're really quite green when they're ripe, they may get a hint of yellow too. But green bee tomatoes are tomatoes that really, they have a lot of the sweetness part of the flavor, but they don't have a lot of what people consider tomatoey, which some people don't like. So I've had friends of mine who take a pint of green bee tomatoes home and then they're texting me the next morning saying, hey, my kid's eating all the green bee tomatoes. They hate tomatoes. And they kind of have, depending on your climate and your weather and how long you let them hang, they can be kind of muted flavors, but they can also get sort of these uh, stone fruit flavors. They can get almost like a plum-like flavor to them if you're allowing them to ripen. I think one of the problems people are probably having with green bee and they're probably not appreciating it enough is that they're they're not letting it hang long enough. And so that's, that's our example of RIN in the way that you weren't supposed to be expected to use RIN to develop tomatoes that you're going to eat. You're supposed to be able to use RIN in a hybrid situation to develop a tomato that ripens more slowly. And now we, you know, in my breeding, we do both. So it does slow down. And so a lot of our cherries right now that we are released there's one called Aji Red. There's one called Madeira. There, and a lot of the long shelf life tomatoes that we have have one of the parents that has a that, that is a Rin parent, and so it slows things down. But at the end, they're tomatoes that, in many cases, you wouldn't really never know from the texture and so on and the flavors that they're that they're Rin if you're eating them at the at the very end. So Rin's just a naturally occurring variant that is useful because it slows things down. And so as far as slowing it down, my comment is that the Rin tomatoes that I've had have mostly been yours. The firmness or crispness that you talk about, it, I feel like it's almost, uh, you know, it gives it, it's almost like a grape, right? You know how, you know, you bite into a grape and it has that crispness. As, and so it's a, it's a little bit different from what people are used to with really soft uh, tomatoes. Right. It is. But it, I think it's also because people, in many cases, I think some of the ones that people are eating as crisp, if they were leave them on the shelf a few days more, they would actually get to a point where they were more similar. But they're probably purchasing them or growing them and they're seeing full color. And then there's still little ways they could go. Um, but the other thing is Rin is Rin in a heterozygous situation is very variable. We in, in conjunction with the other partner line that you're using to create a hybrid tomato. Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting to me, Fred, that you're recommending people let the art, the green be in the, the hang a little bit longer because I'm a big fan of your, your artisan line of tomatoes, which we already, we talked about blush and yeah, you got to pick those quick. Yeah. I, I, was, I was just thinking that it's really, it's the opposite. Okay. Because I think that most people, you know, like I like them a lot. And I'm just going to say for people who aren't familiar with the line, the artisan line of tomatoes is characterized by being more or less cherry tomato sized, elongated shape, and they all have stripes. I like them a lot. And I think most of the people that I've talked to that don't like them, they're letting them sit on the vine too long. And so, which I think is all is happens a lot because with a lot of, not just the artisans, but a lot of varieties of tomatoes, because I think there's this stigma, particularly in the market farming community where flavor is really important. Nobody cares how much tonnage per acre, you know, a market farmer gets what they care about. They're going to come to a market farmer stand if they have the best flavor. And so I think there's been this reaction 
the t- all the tomatoes, so many bad tomatoes that are out there on the market that are picked at, at what we call breaker stage. I, I, I've I've always heard it called breaker stage. It's where you you look at the blossom end of the tomato and there's just there's just the hint of color, let's say red, you know, most typically red, starting to form at the blossom end where you know tomatoes ripen from the blossom end up the tomato. And so uh, my understanding is that that in the tomato industry, one of the things that happened is that they realized that if they if they grew really hard tomatoes and pick them when they're just starting to turn down in Florida, you know, they could get them up to the mid-Atlantic in New York, all the people who live in the sort of like northern mid-Atlantic region. And so I think because there's such a stigma, because those tomatoes are not good. If you pick a tomato where it just has a hint of color at the at the blossom end, they don't tend to ever reach their full p- flavor potential. So I think in the market farming community, rightly so, there's been a, a reaction against this. But I think sometimes people take it too far to the point where they pick they take the fruit off of the vine when it's absolutely dead ripe. Right. And so the thing is, unless you're taking it straight to the farmer's market, it's too ripe. You know, there's such a thing as, as being overripe. You know, there's maybe a peak flavor that does vary depending on the variety. But if you pick your tomato fully ripe and then even the shortest supply chains, usually it's going to get picked and sit around for a couple of days. And then maybe that person buys it. And it sits around for a couple of days or a week on their counter. If the tomato's already at its at or past its peak flavor potential, and then it sits around on somebody's counter for a week, it's just going to be mush by the time somebody enjoys it. And so, most of the people that I've talked to who don't like the artisans, I think they're just picking them dead ripe off the vine. And because it's your tomato, I will you tell people how to harvest the artisan so that they get the peak artisan flavor. I think Molly Rosa is the real example of, and blush, those two tomatoes, I think they might be, when right, the best flavored tomatoes we have. But Molly Rosa in particular is typically at its peak flavor before, well before it gets to peak color. So it's not only not letting it get overripe, it's also picking it and eating it before it gets to what are probably the most pleasing colors. That's one of the reasons why it's just difficult for me to try to spend too much time anymore trying to get people to grow and eat Molly Rosa. Some people love it and some people don't, and there's enough of a market for it. But the problem is that when you have a situation where full color is after peak flavor, you're just bound to lose the battle with having people pick it at the right time. For most of the summer out here, even in our warm climate, blush's peak flavor comes before there's any marbling in the fruit. But of course, the beauty of the blush fruit comes when there's a lot of marbling and usually that's beyond peak flavor. The flavor is there, but it's so there's such a specific window that it's not realized by most people most of the time. The funny thing is that by the fall, those, the flavor and the colors start to merge and then picking at peak color actually is peak flavor. But really with both Blush and Molly Rosa, what I say you have to do because it's a moving target, it's even, even what I just said is wrong. It's not, it changes throughout the season, but it's, so it's really important to kind of have people feeling their fruit and figuring out at that time of the year, what is the right firmness to pick it at? Because that's really the corollary. So you can see that this is an impossible task. And that's why having a little bit of extra shelf life where things get colored in more slowly and they have a longer window when they're really good, even if the stuff I'm developing now that has that is only 90% of the flavor in a peak malleurosa eaten on ex- exactly the right time. For most people, it's going to be much more pleasurable and they're really going to have a much more positive feeling about my cherry tomatoes at this point, I think, because the window is longer and so it allows for people not to have to think so much. Then I always suggest when I am talking to people about what cherry tomato mixes you grow as a grower, I suggest some of my new hybrids and then Sunrise Bumblebee has such excellent color and flavor. I suggest Sunrise Bumblebee grown in smaller amounts that you can sprinkle on the top so that every day that you're going to the market, you have a few Sunrise Bumblebee 
to kind of put in there for that extra visual appeal, but you're not sitting on boxes of them. In other words, you use other varieties as the workhorses and you use those in an amount where you can pretty much use them up every day when you're selling stuff. Yeah. Well, that comment you just made sort of about your how much of what which varieties to grow makes me want to circle back to the RIN discussion a little bit because I know I feel like in the past when we've talked about this, you were saying that you might keep the RIN varieties separate in that they they're not the ones that are gonna slime down. They're they're gonna be the slowest ones to slime down, right? And so is that a strategy that you would recommend for growers to keep RIN varieties separate from non-RIN varieties? And when sales are slow, you can hold the RIN varieties because they have more shelf life until sales pick back up. And um, they can be sort of like your, they can be your, uh, you know, your, your holding varieties. Right. Is that, is that the right? Yeah, we, the we way definitely people should do it? divide. If we have, if we have things like um, rainbow or like, uh, like sunrise mumblebee, and then also we're always trialing other people's things and trying to figure out what we like and, and what's good. And, you know, so if we have things that we pick that we know are sort of standard, you know, they, they ripen up pretty quickly and they're done have a shelf life. We definitely always keep those separate from the ones that we have, that we know have a variety like Aji Red or Pink Cherry Wine or Golden Cherry Wine. These are our three of our new ones. Those varieties, will we, you can have them in a crate at room temperature, 70 to 80 to 90 degree days, and you can hold them in a shaded area for a good week and maybe pick out two or three that are not good as you fill baskets. Whereas if you held the normal ripening varieties for a week, you, you probably couldn't pick out any ones that were any good at that point. Um, so there's we, we we sort of do keep the boxes completely separate, and then when we're filling boxes, if we're making mixed cherry boxes or whatever, we always use everything that we picked from the rows that are normally softening. Well, you know, and I think I think this whole discussion of sort of like flavor when to pick things, when to to sell people sell things to the public, really just gets at, it's not so much. Um, we're talking about your varieties, but I think it's in a bigger sense. It's just flavor is tricky because it's subjective. Different people like different things at different times. And so I want to say growers just need to eat stuff. They need to try their own varieties. And then particularly if they have workers picking them, you know, educate their workers and encourage their workers to eat them some eat the varieties too. Because I know, I think that's one thing that people have traditionally not liked about green tomatoes is that, the cons- consumers have a hard time telling if they're ripe and workers have a hard time telling if they're ripe too, because, you know, a lot of green tomatoes, the color cues when going from unripe to ripe are subtle. You know, in my mind, a lot of the green tomatoes go from being a really solid green to a more like greenish yellow, but it's a very, it's a much more subtle color change than say green to red. Right. And if it's stuck in the middle of the bush, it's hard to even see that if that's, you know, the, you can get something looking ripe or unripe, depending on the way that the light's filtering through. It's very, very difficult to even make that assessment. Out in total light, yes, it's there. But in the in the middle of the bush, that's even difficult to make. Even when you're sophisticated about what you're doing, it's almost impossible to do it. Because you've got it, you see one that looks ripe and you've got it pulled off before it's not ripe and you can't put it back, or vice versa. You know, you leave one, you say, oh, that's not ripe and leave it there. It's in the middle of the bush and you'd get it the next day. And it's maybe a little, maybe a little farther along than you would have wanted it. So, hey, as long as we got people's mouth watering, uh, talking about some of your varieties, are there any other varieties that you'd like to take a chance to, um, you know, point out to people or like have a particular significance for you that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, Benevento. Oh, and Benevento. If you grow beefsteak tomatoes and you're a grower and you sell at the market, I think you should try Benevento. All right. You heard it here, folks. Benevento. Okay. And so that that brings me to another point, Fred. I know your varieties are available in a number of different seed catalogs. And over the years, you've also had a number of different ways that um, people can 
get early access to varieties and, you know, do various times of collaborations and things. And you've done so many things over the years. Can you just tell people where people can get your varieties, both from seed companies and what's going on, you know, with how they can get them from you right now? So there are a number that are out there with various seed companies, mostly the OPs. The one exception is the hybrid green bee is at Johnny's. All the other hybrids are only available through us. That will probably change in the very near future. But right now, we, we're only selling them through Artisan Seeds website. And you don't even need the address because if you type in Artisan Seed Tomato, it'll come right up. Okay. So they can buy them straight from you. Right. So that's really the only way to get these long shelf-like varieties that I've been talking about at this point. Now, there used to be a thing that we did through the website called the Collaborating Members Program, where you paid 250 bucks, and for the next 10 years, you get three or four new varieties that we were thinking about releasing and we want to get opinions on. So people who want to stay ahead of the curve or see some interesting new stuff would, would do that. So that we've, I'm too old. I can't guarantee that 10 years from now, I'm going to want to be sending these things out to people. So we've shut that down. We will make things available year to year. And the one thing, if you're interested in this kind of, let's see it before it's really generally released, uh, kind of a situation on the Artisan Seeds website, you can order the bicolor beefsteak trial. What this is, is our top three long shelf life bicolor beefsteaks where we're trying to do what we've done with Benevento in the tomatoes that are probably, I think, the most problematic when it comes to uniformity of fruit and getting us consistent box. There's nothing I think more beautiful to a number of people than a yellow tomato with an interior marbling of pink. Some of those, when they're right, are the best tasting tomatoes out there. There's a reason you don't see them at the store. There's a reason you don't even see them as much as you would think at the farmer's market. And that is that the best varieties, even if you know when to pick them, you, you can pick two or three fruits that look exactly the same off the same plant. One of them is spectacular and one of them is a little mealy or one of them is a little bit flat. I think they're the ultimate high ceiling, low floor tomato. And it's very difficult to make money on them. It's also very difficult for chefs to use them. So, I mean, I guess, you know, Artisan Seeds website is where you can see kind of what we think is really most our best stuff. But if it's something that we think is really great, it doesn't matter how many other people are selling it. All the stuff we think is really great is on our own website. So it sounds like if people are growing other Hylooms, they should give Benevento a shot. So uh, yeah, check it out, folks. We've got a lot of good stuff over there. All right. Well, Fred, thank you so much for being on the Growing for Market podcast. Folks, check them out. Instagram, Artisan Seeds, at Artisan Seeds, with a dot in the middle, but you'll get it even if you just search Artisan Seeds and uh, find them online. Go try that Benevento at artisan seeds for uh thanks for talking with us and uh good luck with your breeding projects in the future thanks andrew one day i'll get to maine i want to see your farm someday you got a standing invitation all right i'll see you later. all right thanks fred thank you thank you for joining us on the growing for market podcast for more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer check out our magazine at growingformarket.com if you're not familiar with us, you can request a free print or digital copy from the website. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. And don't forget to visit our podcast collaborator, Neversink Farm, for the best in farm tools designed by farmers at neversinktools.com.